Paul has mentioned in verse 8 how the word of the Lord has sounded forth from the Thessalonian church all over that region so that um, uh, he had no need almost to say anything. He'd come into some place, and then we pick up in verse 9, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols uh, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. There was a recent article in our uh, paper, front page, on uh, an increase in the number of people being scammed out of their money. Two of the most common, one involves uh, people posing as workers for APS, the, the uh, electric company, saying that they're going to shut off your power if you don't pay a, an overdue bill. And the other is supposed IRS agents who call and tell you that you owe back taxes and uh, try to get your money that way. But a, a good liar is able to convince you that he's telling the truth so that he can steal your money. Well, the best liar ever is Satan. He is a liar and the father of lies, Jesus said in John 8. But he's not really out for your money. He's out for your soul. Because if Satan can deceive you about eternal matters, then you're eternally deceived. That's a serious, serious thing. And so it is really vital that none of us be deceived about what does it mean to be a genuine Christian. You know, it would just be the ultimate, ultimate shock. And this is, to me, one of the most haunting and scary texts in the New Testament. In Matthew 7, Jesus says that many will say, Lord, Lord, on that day when they stand before him, And he's going to say this to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That would just be horrible. Now, in our text, Paul is continuing to spell out some reasons that he knew that God had chosen the Thessalonians for salvation. He says in verse 4, he's convinced of that. And so, In verse 5, he explains that the experience of the evangelists when they preached there was one reason he knew they were elect. And then in verses 6, 7, and 8, he uh, gives the effects in the lives of the Thessalonians. Um, And he's convinced their faith was genuine. And now he continues enumerating the results that the gospel had made in their lives. And so if this sermon today sounds something like a rerun of last week, it's because Paul is on the same theme. He is continuing to talk about uh, what it looks like to have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, to be truly converted. To sum it up, there are five things here. First of all, genuine Christians receive the gospel Uh, Secondly, they turn to God from their idols. They serve him. They wait expectantly for Jesus to come, and they proclaim the gospel to others. Now, Paul specifically only mentions three of these. Two of them are by implication or kind of we can see them in the text. The three that he states are they turn to God from idols, 
They serve the living and true God, and they wait for his son from heaven. And those in the text correspond up to verse 3. In verse 3, Paul there is thankful for their work of faith. Uh, That results to, uh, I mean, that relates to turning to God from idols. Uh, He mentions their labor of love. That relates to serving the living and true God. And he mentions their steadfastness of hope, which relates to waiting for Jesus to return from heaven. But there are also, at the beginning of verse 9, two other aspects of genuine Christianity that we can see in these new converts. Uh, One was they welcomed or received the gospel, and the other is they proclaimed it to others. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon calls our text, in miniature, the biography of a Christian. So let's look at, first of all, how genuine Christians receive the gospel. Paul recalls what kind of reception we had with you there in verse 9. And that word reception literally means entrance. And I can't help but think that Paul is maybe thinking about uh, what he calls elsewhere the open door for the gospel that he found when he went to Thessalonica. I can't go to all the references, but I put a number of them in the notes. But Paul knew that when he went anywhere to preach the gospel, God had to go before him and open the door. God had to open hearts because otherwise it would be like going and preaching in a cemetery. I mean, you you just can't get through unless God raises the dead. And um, we read in the book of Acts that before Paul went into Macedonia, which is to the west into Europe, thankfully That's the chain through which we all came to Christ. But before he did that, he was seeking to go into Bithynia, which is in now northern Turkey, up there where the Burns family is serving. And there's a strange verse in Acts 16, 7. It says, but the spirit of Jesus was preventing him. So the Holy Spirit was preventing Paul in some unstated way from going over to the northeast, he was up around where current Istanbul is at the time, and instead then he saw a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come over and help us, and so they went over, and as a result there were churches founded in what is now Europe. Now, as we saw last time, the gospel is not a message about how Jesus can help you have a successful and happy life, although He does that, but rather the gospel is a message about how Jesus can rescue you from the wrath to come. The Bible is very clear that our main problem is not a lack of success, it's sin. And our sin has separated us from the holy God. And furthermore, there is nothing that we can do to reconcile ourselves to God. We can't pile up good works that somehow erase all of our sin debt. And we could work from now until uh, we are very old and we still have not eradicated the sin. It would be like going before a judge with thousands of counts of of, uh, crime against us and trying to argue, well, I've been a good person. 
You know, I've done all these good deeds. It just doesn't, yeah, but what about what you've done wrong? You've broken the law. And so our sins have separated us from God and we're under his judgment and we can't pay that penalty except eternal separation from God. But the good news of the Bible is God so loved the world that he sent his only son, his eternal son, Jesus. And he bore the penalty that sinners deserve. And the amazingly good news is that God offers eternal life as a free gift to all who will believe in Jesus, to all who will receive him. And we read in verse 5 that the Thessalonians, in verse 6, had received the word, the, the gospel. They welcomed it into their hearts and lives. Uh, We see the same thing down in chapter 2 and verse 13, where Paul says, We also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, that's the gospel, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And so believing in Jesus to rescue you from the coming wrath, that is the beginning point of the Christian life. If you've never done that, you start there. A second thing we see then is that genuine Christians turn to God from idols. Paul says, we know what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols. Before they heard the gospel, these people, like millions today, hoped that somehow by worshiping these idols, they would placate uh, the wrath of the gods against them. They didn't know about the one and only God. But then they heard the gospel, and they threw away their idols, and they turned to God. They trusted in Jesus alone and his death on the cross to rescue them from their uh, sins. That word turned is another way of saying repented. Repentance is turning from sin to God. And all through the book of Acts, the word repentance is used as the proper way to respond to the gospel. For example, in Acts 26.18, Paul is explaining God's commission to him. As he says, opening the Gentiles' eyes so that, here it is, they may turn from darkness to light uh, and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And then a couple verses later, he sums up his preaching. He said he, he told people that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Now, I've got sermons on, I I really believe repentance is the missing note in the gospel today, at least in America. A lot of emphasis, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, but we don't explain, that means repentance. And sometimes I get asked, well, what's the difference, or how does repentance relate to saving faith? And my answer to that is, they are flip sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. They go together. If you genuinely believe, you turn from your sin. You repent. And you can't repent unless you genuinely believe. Those go together. 
Uh, you just can't separate them. Uh, Jesus, Mark 1.15, sums up his preaching. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's our Lord saying that. Repent and believe. You, you can't separate them. And at the end of the book of Luke, when Jesus sends out the 12 to preach, he says, I want you to proclaim forgiveness of sins or proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins in my name. Let me illustrate. Say you're driving to Phoenix and you repent. Okay, it's a good thing to do when you're driving to Phoenix. <laughs> what, do, what do you do? You turn around. You look for the nearest exit, you get off, you cross over, and you head back to Flagstaff. And if you really believe you shouldn't be going to Phoenix, you're going to show it in your action. Where's the next exit? And you get off and you come back. That's repentance. And you can't drive to Phoenix and say, oh, I believe that I shouldn't be going here. I believe in Flagstaff and all of that. No, if you do, you repent. You turn around and you come back. That's repentance. Now, you know, Paul says here, you can't turn to God without turning from your idols. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that's all nice and everything, but you got to understand, I don't have any idols. I'm not an idolater. I don't set up little statues. I don't have a Buddha in my uh, apartment that I bow down to. So this doesn't apply to me. But the fact is, before we turn to God, we're all idolaters, all of us. Um, Now, there aren't very many, maybe, in America who actually set up statues and pray to them. Although, did you know we have a store in Flagstaff that sells idols? Uh, That's almost exclusively what they sell. At least it used to be over there on San Francisco. I haven't been by it lately. Never been in it. I'm afraid the demons would jump on me. But um, an idol is anything that usurps the rightful place of God in our lives. And the number one idol we all battle is self. And you know, many who profess to believe in Jesus haven't truly believed in Jesus because they've never removed the idol of self. Here's what I mean. They're using Jesus to get what self wants. You see what I mean? Um, Maybe self wants happiness. Someone says, oh, Jesus will give you an abundant life. Thank you. I'll take Jesus. And they put him on the shelf. But they have not dethroned self. They've not, as Jesus said, taken up their cross and followed him and denied self. And that's not repentance. That's not saving faith to just say, well, yeah, I could use a little success in my business. Jesus will give that to me. Sure. Self hasn't been dethroned. Coming to Christ is a matter of denying self, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. It's repentance. It's turning. And so the Thessalonians didn't just say, hey, yeah, we could use a little uh, abundant life and add Jesus to their shelf of idols. No. When they trusted Christ, they trashed their idol shelf, including self, and they put Jesus on the throne. And so that means that when you come to Jesus Christ, there's got to be this decisive break with your old life. Spurgeon described it this way. He said, conversion is the turning of a man completely round to hate what he loved and to love what he hated. It's a matter of the affections. 
you hate what you used to love, and now you love what you used to hate. And it's both initial and ongoing, just as belief is. You initially believe, you keep on believing. You initially repent, and then as you're reading God's word, you go, oh my, I never got rid of that idol. And you get rid of it. And so the Christian life is a life of progressive repentance, turning to God from all our idols. And there's never a time when I can say, well, I'm done repenting now. You know, got that one down. No, it's, it's progressive throughout all of life. You know, in America, we call ourselves evangelicals. And I've read from Al Mohler and others, you know, that term is getting a little bit uh, watered down when you have crazy people calling themselves evangelicals who aren't. And we need a new term. Well, I like the one they use in Eastern Europe. When we've traveled and ministered there, um, the Orthodox people sarcastically or, or derogatorily refer to evangelicals as, oh, those repenters. Those repenters, you know, and it's a, it's a put down. I think it's a great term. Please sign me up as a repenter. I would like to be known as a repenter. And that's what Paul is saying here. Whenever we, the word of God shows me, ah, there's an area, I have to repent again and again. A third thing is, genuine Christians, then Paul says, serve the living and true God. They turn from God to idols to serve a living and true God. And that word serve means to serve as a slave. comes from a word meaning to serve as a slave. And a slave wasn't free to do whatever he wanted to do. You know, he couldn't go in and say to the boss, you know, it's a nice day. I'm going to take the day off and go to the beach, thanks. See you tomorrow. No, he belonged to his owner. His owner had paid a price. And now that slave, as wrong as it was, was his possession. And so he had to live for him. He had to do his will. Whatever the master said, that's what the slave did. Well, the Bible says we are not our own. We've been bought with a price, with the precious blood of Jesus. And so we're his slave. Now, our master, of course, didn't just pay a price of money to get us to do some evil deed for him. No, he bought us with his blood because he loves us. And so serving that kind of master is not dutiful, you know, okay, I guess I got to do it, kind of grudging, hard obedience, but rather we do it out of gratitude and love because he loved us and gave himself on the cross for us. So serving him isn't a burden. Serving him is a delight. Because we love him. Paul describes God here as the living and true God. And he's contrasting it with idols which are, are dead. And often, as you know, behind idols. Uh, we've traveled in Asia enough. You'll see incense burning to idols at the opening of a business. You know, the entrance. And, and they're trying to placate the demons behind the idols. And demons are very real, powerful, spiritual beings, but demons are not God. Demons are under the power of God. There's only one living and true God. He created everything that is. He lives forever, and he is the only rightful master. And so 
if you're a genuine Christian, Paul's saying you live to serve the living and true God. Now, what I'm talking about there isn't just that you serve God a few hours a week and the rest is yours to spend as you please. We have that mistaken idea with regard to giving. I give 10%, the rest of the 90% is mine to to spend as I please. No, it's not. 100% belongs to the Lord. We're just stewards. Same thing with our time. Uh, We don't just serve him. Well, yeah, I serve as a Sunday school teacher for uh, two hours a week, counting my prep time. No, no, that may be what you do, and that's a good ministry and a needed one, but you serve him 24-7. It's a mindset. I'm his clothes, and he works through me wherever I'm doing. And so it may be a formal ministry, teaching our children or serving on a worship team or something. Uh, Maybe it's a physical thing. You pick up the trash in the sanctuary after the service to make it look decent for the second hour, or you help clean up the kitchen. Those are important ministries. But also, serving Christ should be a spiritual ministry, a spiritual ministry where, you know, when you come to church, you're not mainly coming, what can I get out of it today? Now, I hope you get something out of it, but that shouldn't be your focus. Your focus should be, Lord, How can I serve you today? I'm going to be with brothers and sisters, maybe with somebody who doesn't even know Jesus. How can I be your channel for your love, your grace, your encouragement to come through to these people? And so you come in with that mindset of here I am to serve the body of Christ. Maybe to serve a visitor who's lonely and needs a friend or whatever. And and it's not just Sunday at home cleaning house, doing the laundry, whatever you do, or at work, or at school, or wherever you're at, you're a servant of Christ. It's a mindset. He bought you as his slave. So, genuine Christians then receive the gospel. They turn to God from their idols. They serve the living and true God. Fourthly, Paul says genuine Christians wait expectantly for God's Son from heaven. Verse 10, To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. You know, when Jesus ascended into heaven and the disciples were there watching, the angel said to them in Acts 1.11, This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. How did he go into heaven? Bodily. They had been with him. They had touched him. They had eaten with him. He was physically with them. Physically, bodily, he went into heaven. Physically, bodily, he's coming again. And we read that every eye shall see him. Uh, Leon Morris in his commentary notes that the second coming of Jesus is mentioned on average once every 13 verses from Matthew to Revelation. So this isn't a minor doctrine (laughs) that Jesus is coming. It is there over and over and over again. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul mentions it at the end of every single chapter, and he'll mention it in 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2 as well. 
so while Bible-believing Christians differ on <clears throat> many of the details of the how and when and, you know, all of that of his coming, every Bible-believing Christian believes this. Jesus is coming back bodily. Okay, if they deny that, that's a fundamental doctrine of the faith. He is coming back. You know, back, some of you are too young to remember this, but when Jimmy Carter was president, on a couple of occasions, he stayed overnight in the home of an average American to kind of show his identity with the common person. Now, regardless of your views of the current president, if you got a phone call saying the president is going to come to your home and spend the night, I can guarantee you, you would make some changes around the house. Uh, You would go through that house with a fine-tooth comb, giving it a cleaning like it had never been cleaned before. Probably there are some broken things that you've procrastinated fixing. Those would get fixed. Um, Maybe some furnishings that are a little worn out, and you'd say, now's the time I think I'm going to, you know, go down to Ikea or somewhere and... uh, get something a little nicer looking. You would get ready for his coming, and you would wait expectantly for his coming. Now, the point I'm making is this. When you turn to the New Testament, the second coming of Jesus isn't there so you can fill out your prophecy chart. That's not the point. The point is you need to clean house. You need to get your act together. You need to be ready, morally, spiritually, waiting for him, saying, Lord Jesus, come. And there shouldn't be any dirty closets in your life. You know, if there's broken relationships, you should seek to to do all that you can to be at peace with them. You should be ready. John Calvin, in his commentary, puts it this way, For unless we are stirred up to the hope of eternal life, The world will quickly draw us to itself. Let everyone, therefore, that would persevere in a course of holy life apply his whole mind to an expectation of Christ's coming. We should look for his coming and live appropriately. Just want to point out seven things very quickly in verse 10 about Jesus. First of all, it says he's God's son. Now, That doesn't mean Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you, yes, there was a time when Jesus was not, and then God begot him as his son, like there was a time when my son was not, and then he came into being. That's what they tell you. That is a uh, heretical lie. The Bible is very clear. Jesus is God's eternal son. Eternally, the Father related to the Son and, of course, the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. But let me show how you can refute the Jehovah's Witnesses. In Revelation 1.8, and this verse is reflecting Isaiah 41.4, God says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who, it, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, I think most of you know Alpha and Omega are like A and Z, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And then 
a few verses later, verse 17 and, and also in chapter 2, verse 8, Jesus twice announces himself as the first and the last. He's relating to that verse that God just said. But then to cinch it up, you get to Revelation 22:13, and Jesus says this. Remember, in Revelation 1:8, it was the Lord God who said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. In Revelation 22:13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He's claiming to be the Lord God. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so Jesus is God's eternal son. A second truth in verse 10 is that Jesus ascended into heaven, as we've seen, from where he will return. Um, Just before the, the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus to be crucified, the Jewish high priest asked him in Matthew 26, 63, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, up to that point, Jesus had been silent. But he couldn't remain silent to that kind of a, a challenge. And so he replied, and his, his reply is a reference, as the Jews knew, to Daniel seven thirteen and 14. Jesus said, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And again, the Son of Man goes back to Daniel 7. But Jesus is claiming that he is going to heaven, and that's where he will come again. And that's the third thing here. He's coming again. Now, there's some radical uh, preterists, it's a view of the second coming, who say Jesus came again spiritually in A.D. 70. He's not coming again bodily. Again, that's heresy. Um, Revelation 1.7 says this, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. So if he is not coming again bodily, then God's word is simply false. A fourth truth about Jesus is that God raised him from the dead. And the bodily resurrection of Jesus is at the very heart of of the apostolic witness to the extent that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. So the bodily resurrection of Jesus is central. A fifth truth about Jesus is that he, the eternal son of God, is also fully human. And that comes from Jesus, his human name that the angel told Joseph to give him. Jesus means, of course, that Yahweh saves. Um, uh, The book of Matthew, as well as the book of Luke, show that God, the Holy Spirit, supernaturally impregnated the Virgin Mary so that her offspring is uh, the Son of God, Holy One, who is fully God and fully man. Jesus had to be fully God to atone for the sins of the human race. He had to be fully man to identify with the human race, and so he is uniquely our Savior. Um, And then verse uh, number 6, Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come, as Paul says in verse 10. Uh, That term rescue or 
deliverer, it's, it's a um, uh, substantive pro, uh, participle in the Greek, but anyway, it goes back in the Greek text to Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 20 in the Greek Old Testament. It promises the deliverer will come to, and turn away ungodliness from Jacob when the wrath of the Lord comes. And now that promise, of course, extends to the Gentiles. But I like that. I love that song we sang about Jesus, the rescue for sinners. And the fact that he rescues us means we can't rescue ourselves. We can't even help out in the operation. Uh, Once when I was in the Coast Guard, we had to go out in gale force winds and rescue a guy and his daughter whose sailboat had broken down way out beyond Catalina. And... um, he later wrote a thank you note and said, you saved our lives, which was true. He would have died out there and his daughter if we had not rescued him. And that's what Jesus has done for all who believe in him. Uh, the Bible says all we have to do is call out. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we call out, we dial 911, say, help, Lord. I need rescuing from my sins, and he's the one who does that. And then seventh and finally here, when Jesus comes, it says he's going to deal out wrath to all who have not obeyed the gospel. He rescues us from the wrath to come. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 8, Paul explains that further. He says, for after all, It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now I realize here I'm... I'm going into unpopular territory, even in evangelical circles. The idea of the wrath of God is not a uh, popular subject. Uh, We would much rather tell people God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and kind of tamp down the wrath part of it, shove it into the closet. Um, But the Bible is so clear that there is horrible, eternal punishment for all who reject Jesus Christ and die without being reconciled to God. You know, I think even evangelicals tend to be a little embarrassed by that, and so so we dodge it. And I think that's where this idea, trust Jesus, he'll give you a happy life. Well, may be true if you def- define a happy life, as uh, I just read in Voice of the Martyrs yesterday, getting beaten by an angry mob that plans to burn you to death, Um, you know, suffering the loss of loved ones. Yeah, yeah, he plans to give you a happy life. But the Bible is so clear, that's not the main issue. The main issue is there's wrath coming. And no one spells that out more in the Bible than Jesus He speaks about the awfulness of the judgment to come. If you're wrestling with how could God punish relatively good people forever and ever and ever in hell, 
I would recommend you go online and type in Jonathan Edwards, um, The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. It's kind of a long read, but be thankful you didn't have me preach it. Um, Because it probably took about two hours to preach that thing. But by the time you're done, his argument is pretty clear and convincing. He argues that if God is infinitely holy, then any sin is an infinite offense against a holy God that deserves infinite punishment. And you, you, and as I read that sermon, I go, yeah, but, and I want to go here, and he blocks you. Yeah, yeah, but, and he blocks you. And by the time you're done, you're going, wow, uh, he is right. So it's not a pleasant thing to contemplate, I agree. But it's, you, you can't claim I'm a Christian, a follower of Jesus, but I reject what he said about hell. And what he says about hell isn't subtle. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And, you know, the story of the rich man and Lazarus and so on. So the truth is this. Either your sin or someone you're talking to's sin is on that person or it's on Jesus because you fled to him to rescue you. Those are the only options. Either, no, I'm not trusting in my goodness. Uh, I'm not downplaying my sin. It's horrible. But Jesus rescued me. I'm trusting him. That's one option. I hope everyone's there. The other option is, no, I'm going to face the wrath of God. And then there's a final thing here. And that is that genuine Christians proclaim the good news about Jesus to others. Now, we saw that in verse 8. I'm not going to belabor the point. But um, Paul says, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you all over. And then it's implied in verse 9 when he adds, for they themselves report to us the kind of entrance we had from you. And then he spells out what kind of entrance you turn to God from idols and and so on. Um, And so the point is, If you've been rescued, you tell other people about it. You know, you read those stories in Reader's Digest every month. You know, some guy's out in the woods and he's going to die, and somehow he got rescued. Voila, he writes a story and tells everyone about it. Why? It's exciting when you get rescued. Well, Jesus rescued us from our sin and and from judgment, so you want to tell everybody. But the danger is we're going to water down the gospel. Let me illustrate it this way. Suppose you're on a cruise ship and uh, it's sailing in the uh, Caribbean seas and everybody on board is just having a wonderful time eating the good meals and, you know, sipping iced tea and looking at the beautiful uh, ocean and they're lounging on deck. And here's a guy coming along selling sun visors. And he says, Wouldn't you like to buy a sun visor? It'll make your trip much more comfortable. It'll protect you from the sun and so on. And besides, they don't cost much. And so he's selling a lot of sun visors. Okay, but say that that salesman, before or maybe after he got on board the cruise, discovered that before the cruise began, terrorists had planted a time bomb. And it was 100% certain that ship was going to explode and everybody on board was going down. 
would you be on deck selling sun visors to make the trip more comfortable if you knew the ship was going down? Now, of course, God is not a terrorist, but he is a holy God, a God who is opposed to all sin. And he's given us fair warning and saying, the ship called world, folks, is going down. It's going to be destroyed with fire. And everybody on board with that ship is going to perish. And Jesus isn't a sun visor. He's the, the lifeboat. And if you get in the lifeboat now, you'll be rescued. You see, it's, it's a whole different way of viewing things than to say, oh, the Christian life will make you more comfortable on the journey. Well, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But the point is, the ship's going down. Judgment is coming. It's certain, or else the Bible is a sham. It's a lie. And God, in his mercy, provided enough lifeboats for everyone. It's only one boat. And it's a sure boat. And that's the Lord Jesus. And that's the message we have to proclaim. Abandon ship. That ship's going down. Get on board with Jesus. He's the only sure way for eternal life to come. So I just encourage you, check yourself against these marks of genuine Christianity. First and foremost, have you received the good news? Have you welcomed the gospel that Christ died for your sins into your life? And then secondly, as a result of that, did you decisively turn from your idols, from all the stuff this world offers to Jesus to serve the living and true God day and night? You're his blood-bought slave. And then because of that, you're looking expectantly for his coming and you can't help telling others the good news of how Jesus can rescue them from the wrath to come. Dear Father, I pray that you would work that good news in every heart and life, that we wouldn't be carried astray by all of the false gospels that are being promoted by all the hucksters on TV these days, but that we would see that at the heart of the gospel is that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, offered himself on the cross to rescue us from the certain wrath that is coming on the whole world. Lord, I pray you would help us to proclaim that message in ways appropriate to our culture, but to be, as Paul prayed, bold witnesses for Christ. Lord, I ask if any are here outside of Christ, your Holy Spirit would convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment and that he would draw them to Jesus as their only refuge. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.